Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Acts chapter 20, beginning with verse 17 and studying through verse 38, listening to the heart of God's greatest missionary. Hear the word of the Lord. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in after you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak, the poor. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. I often say that last words are meant to be lasting words, and Paul takes advantage of that at least on two occasions. Here in verbal form in Acts chapter 20, and then again in written form when he penned the letter of 2 Timothy. Last words come from our heart. 
They provide a, a picture of what is most important to us. Paul has called the elders from the church at Ephesus to travel about 20 miles south to a city called Miletus to meet him there. He tells us in verse 31 that he had spent three years doing missionary work in the city, winning people to Christ and planting churches. Then in verse 25, as I just read, and again it is referenced in verse 38, he informs these brothers that this will be the very last time that he will ever see them. So in that light, the words of this evangelist, uh, this missionary, this church planner and theologian, I think take on an added weight and an added significance. Paul has called these elders to himself because he wants to make sure that the work that he began will both survive and thrive after he is gone. And so in this address to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, Paul will highlight, I believe, no less than 10 essentials of faithful and lasting missionary work. I would also submit to you all this morning that they are just as relevant in the 21st century as they were in the first century. We're going to see in these words that Paul is incredibly autobiographical. In fact, I, as I read through this thought, this is a, a soul sermon, a sermon that emerges and flows out of the very heart and soul of God's greatest missionary. And so what is it that we can learn from these verses and what does Paul hope will be true for every single one of us who is on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll walk you through these 10 observations very quickly this morning. Number one, live an exemplary life as you proclaim the gospel. The elders have arrived at the request of Paul, gathered to hear what he has to say there in Miletus. Paul was very cognizant of the fact that as the leaders go, so goes the church. And so Paul felt it imperative to admonish and, and encourage and instruct these leaders. He immediately jumps right to the point of his address by pointing out what they learned from his own life and the example that he set. Verse 18, you know how I live. And he goes on to point out that there was a consistency to his example. You know how I lived the whole time. You know how I lived from the first day I set foot in Asia. In other words, what Paul was at the beginning, Paul was until the end. There was never any question, never any doubt, no inconsistencies whatsoever, either in his life or his teaching. He goes on to say in verse 19 that his life could be summed up in three very simple words, serving the Lord. And then he characterizes specifically what that service looked like, noting that he served the Lord, number one, with humility, number two, with tears, and number three, with trials. He served the Lord with humility. Paul recognizes, we must recognize that God is king and we are his servant. We go where he tells us to go and we do what he tells us to do. He commands and we obey. No bargaining, no negotiating, no debating. He speaks and we act. He served with humility. He served with tears. Paul knew these people and Paul deeply loved and cared for these people. One of the things that often grieves me when I speak to missionaries overseas and I hear what's going on in their particular context, not often, but occasionally I will meet up with folks and I wonder, do they really love the people that they're here to share the gospel with? 
They don't spend time with them or they limit the time as much as they can. They tend to hang out with other expatriates more than they hang out with the folks that they have gone there to minister to. This was not true of Paul. Paul knew the people in Ephesus. Paul knew the people that he shared with, and Paul cared deeply for them. He loved them, and their eternal destiny mattered greatly to him. He served with humility. He served with tears, but he also served with trials. Uh, Time will not permit, but go read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 33, and you'll get a wonderful picture of the trials that Paul endured because of his faithful missionary service. Paul further notes in verse 21 and 22 that the ministry in which he was engaged was one that he engaged boldly. He says that he did not shrink back. And he then specifies exactly what that means because his ministry was characterized by declaring, by teaching, and by testifying. So Paul declared what was profitable to those at Ephesus. He also taught them the scriptures and he testified consistently to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, it was a public ministry and it was a private ministry as well. I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you first in public and also from house to house. So it was a big setting where he would proclaim the gospel and there were small settings where he would proclaim the gospel. Some have even referred to that this as the 2020 vision of missionary ministry. And furthermore, Paul is quite clear. He was indiscriminate in sharing that gospel. He did it both with Jews and also with Greeks. And it was gospel-centered. He preached the message of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I like to summarize it this way. Paul preached a whole gospel for the whole world. This is what they saw, and this is what they heard when they looked at Paul. It was an exemplary missionary life for all of us who are on mission for God to emulate and to follow. I love what the wonderful disciple maker Robert Coleman said in his classic book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. The ultimate goal of Jesus for his disciples was that his life be reproduced in them and through them into the lives of others. That was the goal of Jesus, and that was the goal of Paul too. Number two, we should trust in the promise of God wherever he leads. Paul looked back in verses 17 through 21. Now he looks forward in verses 22 through 23. That is signaled by the phrase, and now behold. And as he considers his future, Paul makes clear a number of things. First of all, he is completely in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained. Some translations have it bound by the Spirit. Secondly, he has no idea in terms of the details what is going to happen to him. He does not know what will happen to him next. I go bound, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will take place or what will happen to me there. Thirdly, he points out that the Spirit has let him in on at least one aspect of his race or the course that he is involved in. In every city, you can expect two things, both imprisonment, and afflictions. The NIV translates it imprisonment and hardships. What is God saying to Paul through the Spirit? Simply this, 
Ministry in the past has been tough, and ministry in the future will be tough as well. You can count on it. That is, in one sense, God's missionary promise to everyone who is on mission for him. As one man said, missions is not for wimps. And Paul understood that very, very well. And yet, don't miss this. Paul was content not to know the details and the specifics of what his future was going to be. God had been faithful in the past, and God would be faithful in the future. God had been faithful in the past, and Paul was committed he would be faithful too. Now, every now and then I run into people who want uh, to encourage us to, to put out of our minds and even out of our consideration uh, the high cost that can be ours in following Christ wherever it is that he might lead. Uh, there are people that say to me again and again and again, what's wrong with serving in a comfortable place? What's wrong with serving in a familiar place? Well, there's nothing wrong with that if that's what God calls you to. But I don't find it very often in the Bible that calls you to be, that God calls us to places where we're to be comfortable. I don't find it very often where God calls us to be places that are familiar to us. Paul says, no, not on your life. I know the Spirit has ordained it, and I will embrace it. It may involve trials. It may involve affliction. It may involve imprisonment. It may even involve my death, but I trust in the Word of God where the Lord says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We were introduced on Tuesday by David Platt to one of my missionary heroes, uh, Adoniram Judson and his three wives, Anne, Mary, and Emily. On one occasion, Judson made this statement reflecting upon his own pain and suffering. I quote, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite mercy and love, I could not have survived my many, many sufferings. Yes, we trust in the prophets of God wherever he leads, no matter what. Number three, don't live a wasted life. Don't live a wasted life. Verse 24 may be the most important verse in this passage. In many ways, it could be called the missionary motto or the missionary manifesto. Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Prison and suffering is in my future. And Paul would say, it doesn't matter. I do not account my life, one, of any value to me, or secondly, precious to me. In other words, Paul would say to us this morning, my life is not what matters. Faithfulness to God is what matters. I only want one thing, to finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, there's only one other place in all of his writings where Paul speaks in this same kind of way, and it is in his last letter, 2 Timothy, and in particular, chapter 4, verse 7 and verse 8. Paul is in the Mamertine dungeon. He is in prison in Rome. He does not expect to be released. He anticipates his execution, and so he pins these words to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so in words similar to those, Paul says here in this particular passage, the bottom line for me, faithfulness is better than life. 
Faithfulness is better than life. John Piper puts all of this in a good context when he creates an imaginary conversation that might take place today if Paul were alive and an antagonist who comes to him and tries to dissuade him from thinking along these categories. He points out that Paul's thinking, and I quote, goes completely against the American dream. And so here's how an imaginary antagonist might confront Paul in our day and Paul's take on what it means to serve Jesus. But Paul, you're getting old. How about a little cottage on the Aegean Sea? You've already done more in your ministry than most people could do in five lifetimes. It's time to rest. Let the last 20 years of your life be travel and golf and puttering around. Let Timothy have a chance. He's young. And for goodness sakes, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Rome and give up that crazy plan at your age to go to Spain. Why, you could get yourself killed. It is an American. It's not the American dream of what you do with the last years of your life. And then John puts a response in the words of Paul. Faithfulness is better than life, better than leisure life in retirement, better than leisure life in the middle years, and better than leisure life in youth. Do you want to hear some of the definitions of retire I discovered from Webster's Collegiate Dictionary? Here they are, to withdraw from action or danger, to fall back, to go to bed, to march away from the enemy. That may be the American dream, but it has absolutely no foundation in Scripture at all. And I love the words of David Livingston in this context. God had an only son, and he was a missionary. A poor, poor example of him I am, but in this work I now live, and in this work I wish to die. Don't live a wasted life. Number four, be faithful to the ministry God gives you. Paul writes these words with a heavy heart. He knows, verse 25, as he, I read a moment ago, that none of them will see his face again. Uh, those among whom he has proclaimed the kingdom will not see my face again. And so when Paul reflects for just a moment on these are people that I have loved, these are people I have poured my life into, and these are people that in God's providence I will never, ever see again, Paul becomes a little bit reflective. And having done so, he's able to declare in verse 26 and verse 27 two things. One, I am innocent of the blood of all of you, and secondly, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, I believe there's a package that fits together here to this point in Paul's address. And so let me show you how I think it all comes together. Paul had held back nothing, he said in verse 20, that was profitable. And how could he say that? Because of what he now says in verse 27. Because I declared to you the whole counsel of God. 
Furthermore, because he declared the whole counsel of God, go back to verse 20, in public and from house to house, because he declared the whole counsel of God, go back, verse 21, both to Jews and to Greeks, he can now make an astounding statement, I am innocent of the blood of all. Now, let's do not move too quickly past the point that Paul is making. Is it possible for you and for me to be guilty of the blood of another person? Well, the Bible is quite clear in that answer. Yes, it is possible. You say, how? Uh, isn't God sovereign? He is. Doesn't God orchestrate and work all things after the counsel of his own will? He does. But he does so working through people like you and through me. The Bible nowhere allows the doctrine of God's sovereignty to ever remove our personal responsibility to spread the gospel as far and wide as we possibly can. Here's the reason you and I can be guilty of the blood of another person. God gives us the opportunity to share the gospel with them and tell them the truth, and we don't do it. Even though he gives us the opportunity and the Spirit even prompts us to do so, you say, where in the world did Paul get an idea like this? Well, he got it, I think, from the Old Testament. And in particular, I think he was drawing from Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 7 through 9. Hear the word of the prophet there. As for you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, give them a warning for me. And if I say to the wicked, wicked one, you will surely die, but you do not speak out to warn him about his way. That wicked person will die for his iniquity, yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. Human responsibility is found in the mouth of the prophet. Human responsibility to share the gospel is found in the mouth of the apostle too. Being faithful to the ministry requires, I believe, at least two things. First, we have to have a courageous life to speak the truth. Yes, missionary work is not only not for wimps. Missionary work is not for cowards either. And secondly, sound doctrine is essential that we then be able to communicate clearly the truth of the good news. Innocence of the blood of others, in other words, means both that we know the truth and also that we speak the truth. Both are necessary, both are essential. No one, I think, put it better than the wonderful Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Number five, good missionaries protect the people of God from the wolves. Verse 28 contains the first imperative and direct exhortation that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders. There's a second one in verse 31. Let me just show them to you. First of all, verse 28, pay careful attention. And then again in verse 31, therefore be alert. And so Paul peppers both times this word calling us to vigilance and calling us to be on guard first of all he says there in verse 28 he calls us to be vigilant over ourselves 
But then he also calls us to be vigilant or to pay careful attention to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made us overseers, the Greek word episkopos, to care or shepherd for them, the church of God, a church that he says was obtained by God with his own blood. Now, why does Paul call us to pay careful attention? Why does Paul call us to be on the alert? Well, the answer is given there in verse 29 and verse 30, wolves. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And I know that from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted, perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul tells us that fierce wolves, uh, this Christian Standard Bible translates it, savage wolves will come in, yes, from the outside, but amazingly, they will also rise up from the inside, from among your own selves. Will arise men speaking twisted things. The Christian Standard Bible, the NIV says, men will rise up who distort the truth and therefore draw disciples after them. Of course, Paul is simply echoing the words of Jesus, isn't he? Because in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus referred to ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing, later identifying them as nothing less than false prophets. And so Paul says to those of us who are on mission for God, when it comes to the flock of God, pay attention, be alert. And when you spot a wolf, kill it. Take it out. It's up to no good. It will not spare the flock of God. And how serious was Paul about this? Look at verse 31. I warned the Ephesians first for three years. I warned the Ephesians secondly, night and day. Thirdly, I warned the Ephesians admonishing them with tears. This is why those who go to the mission field and plant churches must be both capable missionaries, but also capable theologians. And you have to be an expert in what I call wolfology. And when you see the wolves and when you spot the wolves, you have to identify them and you have to slay them and put them away. Note what Paul says. God cares for the church because it is that which he obtained with his own blood. Oswald Sanders said it so beautifully, Jesus drank a cup of wrath without mercy that we might drink a cup of mercy without wrath. And I would just simply say this to you, what is precious to God must also be precious to us. C.S. Lewis was spot on when he said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. So pay attention. Be alert. Wolves are on the prowl. Number six, always trust the word to do its work. Always trust the word to do its work. I believe verse 32 flows naturally from verse 31. How do we detect and destroy the ravenous wolf? Well, that's simple. It is the word of God. I commend to you to God and to the word of his grace. And notice how he describes the word of his grace. It is first of all, able to build you up. Secondly, to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
Paul says again, the word of God is profitable. It builds us up. He also tells us that it is the word of God that makes us understand the inheritance that is ours among all those who are being sanctified to kind of put it together in a theological formula. To be built up is to be sanctified and to understand and enjoy then the fullness and the richness of our salvation and its inheritance. Paul will go on, as we'll see in just a moment, to tell us that this inheritance will take away the love of money, verse 33 and verse 34. And looking back, it will even take away the love of the things of this world in verse 24. You know, when I think about the word of God, my mind almost always goes to the great reformer, Martin Luther. And no one described the power and the, uh, the authority that the word of God had to topple the false religious systems of his day. And so Luther, in a sermon on March the 22nd, 1522, said the following, and I quote, in short, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no one by force. For faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences in all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such loss upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. And when we are on mission for Christ, we need to trust and trust fully that the word of God will always be successful to do its work. Number seven, make sure we serve with proper motivation. We serve with proper motivation. You see, God is not only concerned, brothers and sisters, that we do the right thing. God is also concerned that we do the right thing with the right motivation. We do the right thing for the right reason. And so Paul declares boldly and without any equivocation at all that money was never his motive. He says in verse 33, I coveted neither money nor clothes. He goes on to say, when called upon, he worked. He was a bivocational missionary. He worked to meet his own needs as well as to work to meet the needs of others. Again, John Piper, I think, is spot on. The main point is that Paul did not want to get rich off of anyone at Ephesus. Instead, he wanted to meet people's needs. He wanted to make people rich with Jesus Christ. So, yes, Paul was definitely interested in riches, not his own, but others. And again, quoting a great missionary hero, David Brainerd gets it right, and he is spot on again. All my desire was the conversion of the heathen. I cared not where or how I lived or what hardships I went through so that I could but gain souls to Christ. I declare now I am dying. I would not have spent my life otherwise for the whole world and so we make sure that we serve with proper motivation let me just say this I've seldom met young men and young women like you that got into the ministry for money but I have met people my age where money had become their motivation always be on guard against that danger number eight 
Always be generous in giving and helping others. Missionaries do whatever is necessary to reach the people God sends them to. Whatever it takes is embedded, I believe, in the missionary DNA. And Paul himself was more than willing to work with his own hands. He tells us there in verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities on the one hand and those who were with me on the other hand. It also allowed him to show visibly and concretely the importance of working hard, as he points out, to help the weak. It probably has in mind specifically to help the poor. Now, let me be crystal clear here. We do not preach a social gospel, but we do preach a gospel with social implications. Let me say that again. We do not preach a social gospel, but we do preach a gospel with social implications which will bring credibility to the gospel message. And so Paul says a missiological concern for the weak or the poor is important. And you say, well, where did he get this idea? He got it from Jesus. And he quotes a saying by our Lord that you do not find in the canonical gospels, but no doubt was an authentic saying of our Lord. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And believing that it is more blessed to give than receive will cut clean the root of selfishness and greed in our lives. It will give the servant of God what one man has called a noble indifference to money. A noble indifference to money. Needs of others then become a greater concern than your own. After all, this is simply what we learn from Jesus who said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but he came to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And again, I love the words of the missionary hero, David Livingston. Do not think me mad. It is not to make money that I believe a Christian should live. The noblest thing a man can do is just humbly to receive and then go amongst others and give. Number nine, faithful missionary service involves us praying with and for others. Paul concludes his address, has concluded his address, and in verse 36, he shares his heart with the Ephesian elders doing the one thing that was left to be done, and that was to pray. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Paul drops to his knees. The others join him, and they prayed together. Everything was committed to the Lord in prayer. Again, I love the statement of three of my missionary heroes. You will see them on the screen, A.B. Simpson. Prayer is the mighty engine that is to move the missionary work. A.T. Pearson, every step in the progress of missions is directly traceable to prayer. James O. Frazier, solid, lasting missionary work is done on our knees. And finally, number 10, do not be afraid to shed some tears with others. The prayers of Paul and the elders were accompanied by, the text says, much weeping on the part of all as well as kisses of brotherly affection, verse 37. Knowing that they would never see him again was more than they could bear, as we see there in verse 38. So the men who gathered on this occasion had no shame in weeping before the Lord and with one another. John Piper says it well. Serving the Lord means getting so intensely involved in people's struggles that you cry over them. Billy Graham said, tears shed for self are tears of weakness, 
but tears shed for others are a sign of strength. And I would simply add, tears, prayers, and missions are wonderful companions in the eyes of God. We should join them together more often. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there is so much in this passage of Scripture for us to meditate upon, contemplate, and digest. And yet, Lord, it is my prayer that you have used me this morning at least to uh, plant some seeds in our hearts to consider what it means to be on mission, faithful mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I do agree with Spurgeon. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Now, Lord, I recognize that what that looks like will be different for all of us. As David emphasized so clearly on Tuesday, for many of us, it means going. It means praying the prayer, not, Lord, should I go, but praying the prayer, Lord, why should I stay? And yet, for some of us, we recognize, Lord, that your calling, uh, your sovereign will and purpose for our life uh, is to be here, but to be here on mission. Lord, we thank you that in your amazing goodness, you have brought the nations to us. There is no excuse, no excuse for any of us not to be engaged in some level and in some way in cross-cultural evangelism and missions. There's no excuse whatsoever. And Father, you call all of your children when it comes to fulfilling the Great Commission to both pray and to give. And not just to give, Lord, out of our abundance, but Lord, to give sacrificially, to, to deem the work of the Lord far more important than anything this world might offer. Lord, I thank you that the greatest missionary that you ever raised up, the Apostle Paul, would bear his soul to these men there at Miletus. Lord, may I learn from my hero, the Apostle Paul, and may I too walk in his footsteps that you might use my life as poor, poor of an example as it is, to reach the nations with the gospel. For this we ask and pray in your saving name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.